Let's open with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we come before you this morning and bow low in our hearts that we might understand and recognize who you are, how great and mighty and awesome, loving and kind and generous toward us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he gave on the cross to save us of our sins. Father, thank you for showing us that truth, giving us a faith that we might trust in him, transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your son. Lord, for these things we are indeed eternally grateful. Father, thank you for the privilege this morning to come together as the body of Christ to open your scriptures, to study, to gain understanding and knowledge, Father, that we might incorporate this understanding into our lives, that we might live in a way that would please and satisfy you. May you be given glory and honor and praise by all that we do in this place this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 52 in our study of the book of Daniel. And for a few weeks now, we've been looking into uh, the historical background of the time when the Roman temple or the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And we've been looking at the, um, the army of the Romans that came against Jerusalem. You remember that the scripture in verse 26 says that the anointed one would come and that he would be cut off and have nothing. And then an important phrase comes after that and it says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary. And that phrase is important Because that prince who is to come shows up in the next verse, in verse 27 of chapter 9. And I believe he is the one that we call the Antichrist. We'll talk about that when we get to verse 27. We've been spending these weeks in 26 trying to link the history of when the sanctuary and Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 AD to the events that happened who did what, so that we might understand better who these people are and who the prince is. Because that then leads us into verse 27, and our eschatology needs to wrap all that together and gain that understanding. So that's what we've been trying to do for several weeks here. This will be the last week, I hope, that we are not specifically going through the scriptures, but rather looking at historical background. And so we've looked at a lot of stuff, but we've come up with two main points that are important when you start talking about how Jerusalem and the sanctuary were destroyed in 70 AD. Without rehashing all the details, the first of those points is the composition of the Roman army, who was in the Roman army. And There's there's no debate that um, 
The reason that Jerusalem was destroyed was because the Jews were rebelling against the Roman authorities and that Rome sent an army to squelch the rebellion, um, not necessarily intending to decimate the land, but rather to stop the rebellion. So, um, and that army, as we've looked at, there's not a whole lot of debate about this either, that by 70 AD, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the Roman army was comprised of provincials, people that had been conquered by Rome that were then placed into the army of Rome, given a lot of money, uh, given potentially citizenship in Rome, which brought a lot of privileges with it, and they were, that was done so that they would be loyal to the Roman emperor. And they had a very good life if you were in the Roman army. So uh, the strong fighting men would typically be willing to do that. So this Roman army was made up at least 50%, up to 80% of the estimates out of provincials. And we saw that in the historical rest record that Vespian and his son Titus went into other lands and brought into Galilee um, three of the Roman legions plus a few from three other legions. So a legion was about 5,000 soldiers, so you have about 20,000 Roman soldiers that were brought into Galilee. And if you use the 50% rule, then maybe 10,000 of those were Italians, the rest being people from lands that had been conquered. But with them, from the lands of Arabia and Syria, came at least 60,000 additional fighting men and their servants who were also trained in fighting. So you've got somewhere around, by the time you put them all together, somewhere around 100,000 troops that came into Galilee, of which about one in 10 or 10,000 are Italians. The other 90% are not. And they're from areas like um, Egypt, Northern Africa, Arabia, Syria, other lands that have been conquered by the Romans. So could have um, even been some from Asia Minor there um, that were in the Roman army, but not Italian. So you have this huge army, maybe 100,000 people, of which about 10,000 maybe are Italians. Okay, then the second major point that we made is that um, the Romans, especially the leadership, gave the people of Jerusalem, gave the Jews, multiple opportunities to surrender. The first came when they camped on a hillside near Jerusalem that could be seen from Jerusalem and showed them the size of their army, 100,000 men, huge army, um, mostly infantry, but some cavalry and battering rams and th that type of military um, guard, um, a lot of uh, guys who shot bows and arrows so you could shoot over the walls into the cities. So they showed them this huge army in hopes that they would surrender. 
Then they didn't. So they came in, they took the first wall around Jerusalem, they took the second wall around Jerusalem, and now they're coming to the third wall. And again, Titus stops the troops, has them camp, and sends Josephus to the gate that he might plead with them to surrender. And Josephus does, and they don't. And so the the, um, Roman army begins to build batteries against the walls of Jerusalem. They have a lot of trouble. Matter of fact, it's miserable because the guys inside the wall would, in the night, throw uh, fire down on and burn up the batteries. And I mean, it was not going well for the Roman army for quite a long time, which is why it took three years for them to besiege Jerusalem. But during that time, obviously the people in Jerusalem running out of water, running out of food, and so they would go out at night to try and find food, and that sometimes they would be discovered by the Roman guards, and they would foolishly try to fight against them, and if you fought against them, you're obviously gonna get killed. So these people would get killed, and then they would, um, if they didn't die from that, they would be crucified all outside of Jerusalem, so that there were thousands, literally, of um, crosses with people's bodies hanging on them outside of Jerusalem. And, And Josephus goes into a lot of details. There were dead bodies all over the ground. There were stacks of dead bodies everywhere. You had the stench of rotting flesh because somewhere around 10,000 people tried to escape from Jerusalem and lost their lives. Some of them went to the Romans and surrendered, and the Romans accepted their surrender and sent them off to um, a city called Gaphna and told them that when this is all over, you can come back and repossess everything that was yours. So obviously the idea in the Romans' mind is that we're going to squelch this, but we're not going to destroy it because you'll be able to come back and get what was yours. Obviously that didn't happen. So with all those bodies on the crosses, Titus was torn. Should I allow this to continue for us to continue to crucify guys, or should I put a stop to it? And he decided to allow it to continue so that the Jews inside of Jerusalem would despair and give up. That was what he hoped for. So that's at least three times that uh, Titus tried to get Jerusalem to surrender. There's a fourth time that comes in what we'll look at today when he again sent Josephus to the gates to plead with them to give up. So at least four times, Titus tried to get the Jews to surrender instead of him having to storm Jerusalem and the temple. Didn't work out that way. And we'll see the details of that today. So those are the two main points that we've shaped over the last three or four weeks. To get to the point where when we read what we're going to read today, we'll have an understanding that 90% of these troops are not Italian that we see take action today. And you know all of this goes to the belief by the majority 
of people who are premillennial that there's going to be a resurrection of the Roman Empire and that the Antichrist will be European. I don't agree with that, and so I'm trying to give you this information to show you why I don't agree with that. And so today, we'll go on again looking at some of the writings of Josephus, and Josephus was there when the Romans invaded Jerusalem. He's not writing a second-hand account. He's writing a first-hand account because he was literally there. They wouldn't allow him to leave. Um, so, and they tried to use him to save the Jews, but that didn't work out. So we've been reading excerpts from these books that Josephus wrote. He wrote six of them about the uh, Jewish wars. And he goes all the way back to Antiochus that we studied several months ago and then writes up, writing that from secondhand accounts, but now up to this point where book six is entitled, From the Great Extremity to Which the Jews Were Reduced to the Taking of Jerusalem by Titus. That's pretty specific. Very narrow time frame that he's talking about here. And, and he writes a lot. This is not a short book. It's pretty long. It's worth your while reading it because there's a lot that I'm not giving you that is written into these pages. You also have, um, trying to, I can't call his name to my mind, the Roman historian, help me here, Tacitus, who also wrote about this same time and very, very interesting perspective that he has because he writes more about the inner workings of the Roman army he clearly says the same thing that Josephus does about the three legions being brought and a few people from other legions um, being brought as part of the army. And he talks about what he calls the auxiliaries coming from the Arabians and the Syrians. Um, so, I mean, very closely aligned, really, with what we've been reading in Josephus. And both of them... Uh, I'm not a historian guy, okay? I never enjoyed history, never studied history. I'm an engineer. And so we barely know how to read, much less enjoy history. So I'm not a historic guy, but these are interesting books. At least to me, they are. So, uh, all right. So um, I told you some people did escape, and Titus allowed them to leave. Others tried to escape, and the Syrians and the um, Arabians caught them and cut their stomachs open so that they could maybe find some jewelry that the Jews had swallowed trying to preserve their wealth. And so that's how many of them died. But the ones that made it to Titus, he allowed to leave and sent them to Gophna. Um, a city, the second most important city in Judea at the time. Um, so not a, not a small place. All right, so after sending Josephus again, last-ditch effort to get them to surrender, uh, Josephus describes himself as ending this request in sobs and tears because they, I mean, did not want to see 
all of them destroyed or the city destroyed. So that doesn't work. So Titus finally gives the order, been waiting all this time, to burn down the gates of Jerusalem, set them afire, and that'll allow us, once they burn somewhat, and they had dug under some of the gates a little bit, that you could use a battering ram to bust them down. So that's what they did. And um, Josephus writes that it's on the very same day, 1,500 years later, that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and destroyed it. Same date, except for a different year. So um, it'd be kind of interesting to try and prove that. Um, but anyway, that's what he claims. Um, they, ba they bust through and kill a lot of Jews, and those who they don't, aren't able to kill go into the temple, which again had a wall around it, had gates, so more fortification, and so they went into the temple. And so instead of sending 100,000 troops against these guys, what the um, Titus and the commanders of the legions did is they picked choice men to make up a small group that would be able to take over um, and invade the temple in an orderly fashion, in a Roman fashion, so that you know, you've got rank and guard and marching and we're gonna take this place. Um, so Titus gets, while, while the Jews are still in the temple, Titus brings the commanders and a few other men together. There's six of them. And they have this discussion about what are their options. And there's two of them. One is to destroy everything. Because if we don't destroy it, then the Jews, after we're gone, will reform and have another rebellion. So that's one school of thought, is destroy everything, burn it, do away with it. The other school of thought is that no, let's don't destroy it because it's such a great ornament. I mean, this is the temple that Herod built, right? Or Herod started and then two other Jew, um, Roman leaders finished. Had only been finished six years before this invasion. So 70 years of building had been going on to expand the temple. So quite an ornate place, overlaid with gold again, like it had been in the original temple. I mean, a lot of wealth. And they, the school of thought was, let's don't destroy it. Let's keep it as a Roman ornament, as a, Ro as a testament to the power of the Roman government. And Titus was of that persuasion to not destroy anything. And so he convinced several of the other commanders that that was the right thing to do. So together, the six leaders of the Roman army that was there decided not to destroy the temple, certainly to kill all the people. I mean, what Titus would say is, let's not destroy things that are inanimate, but let's kill all the men who fight against us. Basically their tenant, that's what they were going to do. 
And so he got this troop, these troops together, and we're going to send them against the Jews. Now, this is over the course of three days that this takes place. So on the night before the temple is destroyed, the Jews, during the night, come out and raid this smaller group of Romans and begin to fight against them. And, but they're pushed back by the Romans all the way into the inner court. So now you just got um, the outer court is now occupied by Romans. And then you've got another wall in the inner court. Okay, again with gates and all that we studied when we studied the temple that, he, um, that Ezekiel described. Similar in layout, just not as big. But again, another set of walls. And so, um, here, let me read this excerpt from book six in chapter four, paragraph three, that Josephus wrote about Titus. And it says, but Titus said, that although the Jews should get upon that holy house and fight us thence, yet ought we not to revenge ourselves on things that are inanimate instead of the men themselves, and that he was not in any case for burning down so vast a work that was, because this would be a mischief to the Romans themselves as it would be an ornament to their government while it continued." So this is Titus saying, we're not going to tear this down, and we're not going to burn it. We're going to preserve it, but we're going to kill all the men that are in it. Okay, that was what he decided, that's what he wanted to do. Then they're invaded by the people from inside the temple, um, push them back to the inner court and occupy the outer court, and then because that was quite a bit of fighting, they decide to retire for the night and invade the next morning to actually go into the inner temple and take it completely. And so they're going to do this the next morning. Now, got to remember, you've got 100,000 soldiers, at least 80,000 or so, of people who have hated the Jews for thousands of years. And so they're kind of worked up because they want to go ahead and get this done and not to wait. So there have been a lot of fires inside of Jerusalem and this small group of troops that got put together, their first assignment was to put out all the fires. Well, of course, you still got smoldering embers, right? I mean, you. They didn't have the tools that we have, so you put down the flames, but you still got things that are very hot. So some of these, and it's undescribed who, probably not a Roman soldier, probably some of the auxiliaries, but during that night, they set the gates to the inner wall and to the inner um, temple on fire. And so they begin to burn because they're overlaid with gold, which will burn if you get it hot enough. And so they begin to burn a lot. And so I'm going to read you, instead of trying to describe what happened, just what Josephus wrote. And this is kind of long, but it's worth us going through it and reading it. 
because he describes several things that I think are important to our understanding of what actually happened the night and the next day that the temple was destroyed. So we just read through this. And I know you could read it yourself, but I want to get this on the audio also. Okay, so again, from the fourth chapter of the sixth book, so just a couple of chapters after what I previously read. And now a certain person came running to Titus and told him of the fire as he was resting himself in his tent after the last battle. Whereupon he rose in great haste and as he was ran into the holy house in order to have a stop put to the fire. After him followed all his commanders and after them followed the several legions in great astonishment so that there was a great clamor and tumult raised as was natural upon the disorderly motion of so great an army. Okay, so stop there. So you've got Titus and the other commanders who had retired, having made the decision and disseminated it amongst all the troops, we're going to invade at daybreak. That wasn't good enough. And the legions, of course, these are their commanders. So they do what their commanders tell them, and they all retire, which is why the legions come running, because they weren't there when this started. And so you've got Titus, you've got the commanders, and you've got the legions who have nothing to do with this. So it only leaves the auxiliaries to have done this. And so they all come running, and the fire has already broken out. And notice the intention of Titus is to stop the fire. Okay, so we go from there and keep reading. And when you see Caesar, it's because they called Titus, Titus Caesar. So Caesar is Titus. Okay, his dad is the true Caesar, Vespasian. But they called him Titus Caesar, assuming he's going to be the next in line. Okay, then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice, and by giving a signal to them with his right hand, ordered them to quench the fire. But they did not hear what he said, though he spake so loud, having their ears already dinned by a greater noise another way. Nor did they attend to the signal he made with his hand, neither, as some of them were distracted with fighting and others with passion. So the Jews are still alive, some of them and are fighting against the guys who have set the, the gates on fire and are now invading the inner temple. And so you've got this fighting, this fire going on, and Titus trying to stop it all. Right, good, good chance. There's 80,000 people fighting. So how are you going to stop them? Okay, so we, we go on from there. Titus has gone into the inner sanctuary. But as for the legions <clears throat> that came running thither, neither any persuasion nor any threatenings could restrain their violence. But each one's own passion was his commander at this time. And when they were come near the holy house, they made as if they did not so much as hear Caesar's orders to the contrary. 
but they encouraged those that were before them to set it on fire. So you've got these troops pressing in with the fires already burning to set everything on fire. So what they set on fire, if you remember the description of the temple, you've got the holy place and you've got the holy of holies, and then around that, you've got the chambers of the priests. So what they set on fire, and those are described as being made of great timbers, and you know um, that, and so they set those on fire. They set the the closets or the whatever you want to call them of the priests on fire. So not actually in the inner uh, in the holy place yet, but all that that's around it. Okay, so that's what's going on. We keep reading, and he just goes on in the next paragraph. And now, since Caesar was no way able to restrain the enthusiastic fury of the soldiers, and the fire proceeded on more and more, he went into the holy place of the temple. So now he's in the holy place. And with his commanders, and saw it, with what was in it, which he found to be far superior to what we ourselves boasted of and believed about it. So what's he talking about? We'll keep reading. But as the flame had not yet reached to its inward parts, but was still consuming the rooms that were about the holy house, and Titus supposing what the fact was, that the house itself might yet be saved, he came in haste, and endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire. Yet were their passions too hard for the regards they had for Caesar and the dread they had of him who forbade them, as was their hatred of the Jews and a certain vehement inclination to fight them, too hard for them also. So Josephus pictures these guys as, okay, Caesar could have us killed, but we just can't stop ourselves. And what, I didn't read it, but what they describe is the great wealth that is in the holy place. That's what they could not even imagine. Walls covered with gold, lots of money, I mean, hordes of money in the holy place. And so they wanted first to rob it and then to destroy it. And so the fire hasn't gotten there yet, and uh, Titus is trying to stop them from allowing the flames to come into the temple proper, into the holy place or the holy of holies. But he doesn't succeed. We keep reading. Moreover, the hope of plunder induced many to go on as having this opinion that all the places within were full of money and as seeing that all around about it was made of gold and besides on the, on of those that went into the place prevented Caesar and when he ran so hastily out to restrain the soldiers and, th and through fire, through the fire upon the hinges of the gates in the dark whereby the flame burst out from within the holy house itself immediately. 
when the commanders retired and Caesar with them, and when nobody any longer forbade those who were without to set fire to it, and thus the holy house burnt down without Caesar's approbation. Okay, so Caesar, Titus, and the commanders did not order or approve of this destruction of the temple itself. Matter of fact, they wanted to do the exact opposite, which was preserve it as an ornament for the Roman government. And they even give orders to all of these who want to burn it not to burn it. But of course, they can't hear him and they can't see him because they don't want to and because their passions want to destroy anything that would be Jewish. And again, in this temple, Jews are fighting against them and it's dark. And the only light that you have is from the fires that are burning. And so they ultimately kill all the people and then the commanders and Titus withdraw because they know they can't stop them and they destroy the sanctuary itself. Now, the, the sanctuary, you think, well, it's made of stone, right? And it was, the walls, but the timbers are what shored it up of the um, houses or the, they were two stories tall, the vestibules, the closets, the priests, chambers that were around it is what gave it support. And so once those are gone, because they're burned down, very easy to topple the walls. And so they do. And they completely destroy the temple itself. So the point, why you go through all this, why do we look at all this history, is did the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary? Or was it another people group? And by Romans, you would be talking about Italians. So if you're of the opinion that the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and that there's going to be a resurrected Roman Empire, then how do you deal with these facts? How do you deal with this historical account? How do you deal with the fact that nine out of ten of those who invaded were not Roman? We're not Italian. So, I mean, that's my question. So who in the prince arises from the people who destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary? So who are those people? Well, they're mainly Syrians and Arabians. And so if the prince arises from those people, that's the people group that he's going to arise from. Not European, but Middle Eastern. And from what we see in the world today, that seems to make more sense. And so, like I've told you, when the European Union first formed, um, those who were of the European opinion thought, okay, this is it. It's now forming, it's gonna be soon. But now the European Union includes you know, places that aren't in Europe, places that are in Asia places that are very, um, you know, Norway and Sweden and all of those countries. And so not necessarily what we think of in the biblical term as European. So you have to face these facts 
and come to a conclusion, you don't have to come to a conclusion, but I would urge you to come to a conclusion. Is it a revived Roman Empire or is it a Middle Eastern Empire, probably based in Constantinople that we studied earlier, Istanbul, called today, which is all Muslim and all of Syria is Muslim, all of Arabia is Muslim, even to the south of there in the Mesopotamia is all Muslim. So is this potentially a Muslim um, caliphate as opposed to a European resurrection? Those are the two, I think, main potential results. And I tend to go with a Muslim caliphate because of these facts that we've been studying. I don't demand that anybody agree with me. I just owe it to you to explain and to give you this information so that you'll know why I come from the perspective that I do. And, and you can disagree with me. I'm okay with that. There are a lot of people who disagree with me on this. And I'm okay with that. But the account that I read in history leads me to the conclusions that I have. And I had not studied this before my first study in Daniel. I never looked at all this history. And so I pretty much was of the European opinion also. But once I studied this, and once I realized what actually happened in 70 AD, I changed my opinion to what I hold to today, which is not European but rather Middle Eastern. So um, that's all the history I wanted to give you is enough. You can certainly go and read more for yourself if you want to. There are other historians, other than Tacitus and Josephus who wrote about this time. And these are the two main players, but there are other guys who wrote. And you can go read those also. And you'll find pretty much the same facts as what we've uncovered here. And so then you have to deal with them and come to conclusions. And this will shape the way that you think about future eschatology and what's going to happen in the future state and how is it going to come about? Who is, who is going to be the Antichrist and the false prophet? This type of information will influence that. And so as we get into verse 27, if the Lord wills, next week, this is the perspective that I'll bring into verse 27, where we see the prince who is to come take actions. And so we'll be back in verse by verse study next week, and we'll do a lot of matching of verse 27 to what goes on in the book of Revelation. Yeah.
Yeah, especially along the Mediterranean, moving northward, but especially along the Mediterranean, huge Muslim populations, partly because of war, that have moved out of the Middle East and Asia Minor into the European countries. I mean, we think we have a lot of people coming here. They have the same issue in Europe. And by the way, um, a lot of money, I just say it that way, being poured into causing that to happen by bad actors. Um, Hungary right now, the one under the greatest severity of infiltration to such a degree that if you live in Hungary, if you have a child, they pay you money. If you have two children, they give you a car. If you have three children, they give you a house to live in. This is the government. Because what they're trying to do is increase the Hungarian population so that the immigrants can't overtake them. Because they are. Yeah, and, and namely the coming of the black flags, which then leads to um, uh, the, the growing worldwide caliphate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and I mean, you can read this as well as I can. Um, it's not as cohesive, and um, you have to dig a little bit because there's a lot of Islamic people writing different things. And so you have to figure out who is the leader of the Islamic movement today and read what he writes. And remember the fact that it, the ten toes, it's iron and ore. Right. Very hard time sticking together. Right. Right. And, and just to put in your mind, ten kings, three who are uprooted, right? Right? So you got Shia and the rest. And so the rest being the minority, the Shia being the majority, three kingdoms uprooted. Why? Because they're different. They don't believe the same thing. And so we'll, we'll get into all that as we look into more details of this. But um, anyway, you at least now know why I believe what I believe. And you see the same history that I've studied to come to those conclusions. So now you have to process and decide, um, do you agree or do you disagree? And it's OK to disagree. Uh, we're not of just one flavor. We're unwilling to discuss, but realize why. OK, thanks for your time this morning.